You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, there is a trait that another person can have that can probably set us off more than any other trait. I don't know. I'm going to test the waters this morning. This was at my previous church. Let me emphasize that. My previous church, there was a uh, committee that I was on, and there was, a, uh, there was a, a money guy on. I actually had two money guys that were on this committee. It wasn't a huge budget. It was a, it was a, a few hundred thousand dollars, but it wasn't like I'm running the Department of Defense over here or anything like that. Like It was relatively simple, all things considered. But I had a couple guys that were way better at that than me, and so I would just ask them questions. And um, so I would look at them, and they, if they would go, we're good, I would go, that's good enough for me. And then I would just kind of keep doing my thing. Um, <clears throat> and then one time, I, I thought, I need, to, I need to understand a little more, so I'm going to ask a question of this one man. And I don't even remember what my question was, but I just said, I'm sorry, can you, do you mind just backing up, and can you explain this line item or how we're accounting for it or whatever it was? And this is what he did when I asked the money guy a question about money. He went, (sighs) (laughs) and then he did the thing that sometimes men do this, especially when they're trying to be like big. He kind of leaned forward and made himself big. And I'm already, he was already, you know, well, to me, he's like eight feet tall because I'm short, but he's already big and he leans forward and then he says, I can explain it, but I really honestly don't expect that you will understand. (laughs) But we're at church, right? We're at church. And I heard him say that, and very quickly I looked around. I was like, that was unbelievable that he just said that, right? And I looked around, and all the nonverbals from everybody else in the committee were like, what did he just say? Well, there's one, there's, there's one woman who is the, like, think of who you know that hates conflict the most, multiply it by 50, and that's this young lady that's sitting over here. And as soon as he said that, she was my big cue because she goes... <laughs> Like that, just starts looking at her nails and doing this. And I was like, okay, he just said something crazy. And he literally proceeded to be like, let me explain, but I don't think you're going to understand. He said, revenues are the things when money comes in, and that's good, and we call it revenue. And then if we have expenses, we call those expenses, and that's money going out. And, and, and so I just went, uh-huh. Like, I wanted to go, I have a checkbook. Like, I know how this works. I know the basics like that. I thought he was about to give me, like, the history. Like, well, the ancient Greeks talked about it like this. And so it was just about to be a disaster. Luckily, a couple people sort of jumped in and, you know, shortcutted a few things nicely and graciously. And then he left the committee the next, the next year. He wasn't on it. And we all went, oh, that's a cry and shame. Okay. And we kind of moved on. Um, brilliant mind, but I remember in that moment when he, got, when he said, I don't expect you to understand, he was so condescending. In fact, I have to confess, my flesh sort of reared up. I was preaching a week or two later, something like that, and as I was preaching, I had really worked hard to take this big, like, big lofty concept and really just try to get to the things that actually matter for people to hear, because we pastors like to just talk about all the stuff that we're hearing, and most people are like, it doesn't really matter, let's get, you know, this is the part that we actually care about. And so I'd I'd worked really, really hard, and I'd I'd even written it out, like, how I was going to explain this big, big, important thing. And as I'm preaching, I look out, and I see him there, and he normally went to the other service, and it was everything in me. Like, I felt my flesh rear up to be like, well, you know, so Calvin once said, like, I wanted to 
to add all the boring stuff to like impress this guy. Like if I could have just gone, now I don't expect you to understand, but let me explain everybody. And so it was literally a time I was up there preaching. How horrible is that? That's going through a preacher's mind while he's talking about this. And by the way, the passage is on humility today. So that works well. But like, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about this and I, I, it so welled up in me because I was just so like, what is this guy doing? That I, I don't normally write stuff out and read it all. And in that moment, I went, I need to read this or I'll get cocky, I'll be snarky, I'll, be, I'll give a little wink wink to someone else on the committee or something. And so I was like, I'm just gonna read this. And I just like read the whole thing. But when somebody comes across as condescending, doesn't that just color a lot of how you see them? And you think, like, how could it actually work even in a human context to say, it's okay to be condescending? The idea of condescension, actually, it's, a, it's this Roman term, and it was, if you picture, um, like, the, the Roman soldiers on the battlefield, and then they would hear that Caesar is there to come, at, he's, he's up watching the battle, he's up on the mountain, he's back at safety, and then the battle is going on, and then Caesar, the emperor, is going to come down and be among the troops once it's over to just thank them and... and uh, that kind of thing. And so they would literally say that he would come from on high, the emperor, and would condescend down to be with the troops. And in that day, to say that he is condescending to be with us in Latin, and he would condescend to be with us, it wasn't a big deal. In fact, it was this honor. But now, if I were to say that I was condescending towards somebody or I condescended to somebody, isn't there something in you that would go, you? We went, a technical accurate use of the term is this. Um, we went this um, last uh, Monday and Tuesday, a bunch of our students and some others went down to Mean Street and we um, sang Christmas carols, there we go, sang Christmas carols on the street, we gave out hot cocoa and gave out presents and had this incredible time. And it would be technically using the term correctly to say that we condescended to be with them. Because what the term means, like literally many of us came from up the hill to go down the hill, for example. Or if you look at, um, at wealth or status as far as society measures it, you could say that people gave up their nice warm homes or whatever it was to go down and to be with them at Mean Street. But we don't use that term. Like if I'm you sitting out there and going, oh, maybe it's technically correct, but why don't you pick a different word? Because that sounds like we're the great people and we are going to you know, bring all of the blessings of just how awesome we are to you. And that's not how Christians see the world. So we say we get to go and be a blessing to them. And frankly, they get to be a blessing to us. And um, yeah, there's people that could have done other things that night. Instead, they went to serve. But that's just the normal Christian life. So we, we, don't, even, we don't even use that term, even if we're using it technically accurately because there's such baggage associated with it. And we, we hate it. Like I feel, I have to say, I feel icky, like even giving that as an example, I feel really icky kind of saying that. Think about this. If you have a, like a hero, it could be a celebrity, it could be a politician or a, a, a singer or actor, actress or something like that. And you go, oh my gosh. And then you finally get to meet them. And when you meet them, they talk down their nose to you in a manner of condescension. Everything about that, you, that you idolized about them can be gone like that. We're really, really sensitive to it. And so I want to show you today that one of the things about Christmas that should bring us joy is that God condescended to us. 
But if we hear that language and we hear about the God who condescends, if we hear that and we all of a sudden just go, no, like that's such an awful, prideful, arrogant thing. No, it, it, it is arrogant, prideful in every other place except for with God to us. I wanna show you this today because the thing is, as Americans especially, you can have this just visceral reaction to thinking about somebody would condescend to me, how dare they? And I wanna show you that we can't attribute that to God. And in fact, the fact that God is a God that has condescended to us is a great thing. And I want it to fill you with joy today. I don't just want you to be okay with this term in reference to God. I want it to fill you with joy. There's not really a better time to talk about this than Christmas, and I don't know of a better passage than Philippians chapter two, which is where we're gonna be. And if you keep up, this is probably in six years about the thirdish time that I've preached on this exact passage, and frankly, should probably do it about every year, because it's all about humility that we have, brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church. Paul is writing to the local church in Philippi, and he says, this is how you're to, to, uh, to behave with one another. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, or some translations say, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's talking to the church saying, be humble with each other and be united together. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or conceit, or the uh, NIV says vain conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. This is the epitome of humility, and he's gonna call Christians to say, be humble towards one another. You might feel justified, you might feel like you have a right to do something, however, forego those at times for the good of the person that is around you. Well, who are you to tell me? Well, he's gonna say, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. For us, look at this. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves. Paul writing to the church at Philippi saying, you Christians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The phrase um, emptied himself. In theological circles, they talk about the word kenosis. This is the kenosis passage. This is the, um, the emptying passage. And there's a lot of um, uncertainty or a lot of questions historically about what this means exactly. What does it mean to say that Jesus emptied himself? This is talking about Christmas. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's two options that have been put forward in history. There's more than that, but two basic options that have been put forward. Um, the first one is, is wrong, um, so don't amen or anything. It's wrong, uh, but it is, nobody would, because I'll say it in a way that won't, that he lost his divinity when he came to earth, that when Jesus was born in the flesh, he was fully man, but he was not fully God. And if you think about it, like as rational human beings, you go, well, that might sort of make sense that he was fully God. And then when he came to earth, he was fully man. And maybe he emptied himself, meaning he's not divine anymore. He's just a man. Like it would sort of rationally, you could start to make sense of it. And the only problem with that is the entire rest of the Bible says something very, very different. 
Jesus says something very, very different. The church fathers have said something very, very different. This was um, this is not this comes up a little bit today. We're not the first people to debate this and try and understand what does it mean that Jesus came to earth? He emptied himself and took on this manhood. What does that actually mean? And what you'll hear in just a second is that he was in this wonderful mystery, fully God and fully man. Good luck figuring all that out. But he was fully God and fully man. I'm going to give you an example of this, that in 451, there was a council that met, the Council of Chalcedon. Looks like Chalcedon, if you want to Google it, and you can see it. Um, the Council of Chalcedon, and they got together because there were some heresies. Most, most creeds came because there were some heresies in the culture and they needed to, or in the church, and they needed to address them. And so this is an example of that. They had questions about, um, about the Pope's uh, infallibility or the supremacy of the Roman Pope, um, the, uh, the emperor's influence over religion. And then one of the biggest things that they gathered to try and clarify was the meaning of the incarnation. Who is Jesus? Did he lose his divinity? Did he just become a man? Or, and what you'll see they say is that he was fully God and fully man. So what they came up with this thing, it's called the Creed of Chalcedon or the Chalcedonian Creed to clarify this is what the scripture teaches about Christ, about the incarnation. There's a lot of Googleable words in here. So just kind of hang with me and, um, and I'll try and sum up as we go along. So here's what they released upon studying the scriptures about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It says, we then following the Holy Fathers, meaning the people who have gone before, all with one consent, uh, it's unanimous, teach men to confess one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us or of the same substance, if you will, of us according to manhood in all things like unto us without sin. They're saying he is just like us. He is 100% man, yet he was without sin. And then it says, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, that's the Trinity, and in these later days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided in two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Amen. Apparently written before punctuation was invented as well. There's one long dang sentence right there at the end. But did you catch what he says? He, they're saying, not he, they are saying there's two natures, fully God, fully man. And they're saying, we didn't just get together and start inventing this stuff. He's saying the fathers that have gone before us have said this. And why did they say it? Because Jesus himself addressed this because this comes in the New Testament and there's hints of it even in the Old Testament as well. And so they're saying this isn't something new. This isn't something we've just invented. And so when it says he emptied himself, we can't with a clear conscience somehow say that he lost his divinity when he came to earth. One of the best ways to understand this is if you look at the text, um, where is it, excuse me, 
Um, he emptied himself, verse seven. Matthew, you might need to go back for me to verse seven. He emptied himself. And then it says, by taking the form of a servant being born of the likeness of men. When you're trying to find that one phrase and trying to figure out what does it mean, um, oftentimes we take it and then we lift it and then we go, okay, what do we think this means? And instead, if you look at what's right before it and right, right, what's right after it, God oftentimes gives great clarity on what it means. So he emptied himself, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, what? Taking the form of a servant. Usually we say, this is option two, this is right, that he came to earth fully God, fully man, but while he was here, he forewent some of his divine privilege that he could have had. Even though he is God, there were times when he didn't just zap people that made him mad. He could have, but he didn't. Do you think he, he, he did? Do you think he, um, do you think he did this? Listen to what he did. This is called, um, oftentimes it's called the hypostatic union, this, this union of the two natures of God and flesh. And I don't have a really good illustration for this, but I'll give you one that maybe, maybe can help. And lawyers will get to make fun of me afterwards. That's okay. All right. If you've got, you've got the three branches of government and you've got executive, legislative, and judicial, and oftentimes the legislate, legislative branch, Congress, will watch the executive branch and will say, we need that you're, you're out of bounds, you're breaking the law, we're gonna subpoena some things from you and you need to comply and then we're gonna take you to court. And so they can go and they can try and subpoena. Now the, other, the problem is that executive branch has something sometimes that's called executive privilege where they can say, you can't subpoena us because we have to have confidential internal memos and notes and conversations and phone calls and all these things. And so you can't because that otherwise we couldn't function. And so this happened, the, the big thing, this all came to a head in, in, uh, with Nixon in um, 74. I didn't live through this. I was negative one at the time. But in 74, it was the U.S. versus Nixon. And what they said is, this, is the, um, the Congress was trying to subpoena some things, and he said no, and he claimed executive privilege. This has happened other times. If this is going on right now, I'm just not watching the news. I'm not trying to make a statement here, all right? So, um, so you have Congress saying executive branch or people that work there, president, et cetera, you need, we're subpoenaing you, you need to get this, and then the judicial branch is gonna try the case. And that, that, well, this hadn't come up, and so Nixon was the big one, and so um, essentially what the Supreme Court has said, if I understand it correctly, is even though the idea of government, of oversight of the executive branch by Congress isn't in the Constitution, or this thing called executive privilege isn't in the Constitution, they said because it talks about the separation of powers, then inherently there should be some oversight and there should be some executive privilege. Meaning, if you have separation of powers, and then you, these people can't just run amok, so there needs to be some kind of check at some point that can be given to them. And so the Supreme Court said it's reasonable that sometimes the, the, that Congress can go and they can say, hey, President or anybody there, we think you're breaking the law, and so we're subpoenaing these. And also, if you have separation of powers and you have Congress that can do anything they want, then you don't have separation of powers. They're basically overseeing the executive branch. And so now it's a super complicated thing where if something happens in the executive branch, then the legislative branch has to see it and they have to go to them and they have to give the subpoena. And if they claim executive privilege, then they get to fight back and forth. And then the judicial branch has to step in and they have to say whether or not executive privilege holds or if there's a good reason that Congress can say you have to, you have to comply with the subpoena. Does that sound complicated or what? That's 
the setup that they see something that they're doing and then they get involved and they have to determine and then you have all the hearings and then they go to court and then you have all that kind of stuff. But it all stops if the person in the executive branch says, I will waive executive privilege. Meaning, come at me. Here's the stuff. That could cost them. And they may lose anyway, I don't know, but if they're willing to say, all this stops because I waive my executive privilege, I'm not going to claim it, and instead I'll provide you what you need and it may cost me greatly. It's about the best I got to get at least a glimpse of something that Jesus did. That Jesus came and he didn't claim all the privileges that he had of being divine, even though he was, and he came and it cost him greatly. Think about this. When he came, you remember the, uh, the, uh, the story of Jesus being born in that incredible palace? Do you remember that? Me neither. He was born in a little stable, placed in a little manger. Now, we did this, it was last year, a year before, we had our, our whole um, Advent series. Um, do you have that logo, Matthew, of our Advent series? Here we go, love has a name. And this is what pastors think about, is I love the image, but I didn't want to use it because that is not what a manger looks like. It's not these lovely wooden slats and hay and a blanket and all that kind of stuff over it. I've been to Israel and I have seen, we were in Megiddo, they, for, I don't know why in Megiddo, but they had a ton of these mangers out. Will you put up that picture of what it looks like? It's rock that has been chiseled out. I'm imagining Nikki when we had our first kid, if she said, Jim, we really need to go get a crib. And I go, no problem, sweetie. I got this. I'm going to save us some money. I got some boulders from the backyard. I'm going to spend all day chiseling away a little dent in the boulder so that we can place our firstborn infant in there. We'll throw some hay and a blanket in first, of course. But good news, it'll be around for like 2,000 years in case we're still having kids. This is where Jesus was born. Think about that. Jesus went from splendor to poverty. He left the company of angels, the perfection of heaven for sin-stained earth. He was born in this stable, born in a cave. Think about walking, read John 1 sometime, walking down the streets in the world that he created. It says the world didn't recognize him. He's walking around going, I have created you. I have created the very, the, the air that you are breathing and I enabled your life. And it says the world didn't recognize him. People he created instead mocked him or they always went around just wanting something from him. When Peter, if you remember when they came to arrest Jesus, cut off the guy's ear and he said, I could call down legions of angels right now, Peter, but he didn't do it. He delivered others from pain, but he took on the ultimate pain himself. In verse eight, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember how he got there through all the trials? This is the guy that could have commanded planets and stars just to just go, you guys want to see a neat trick? Watch. And the planets and the stars and the galaxies just move at his very word or his very thought of that happening. And he allows himself to go through trial and go to the cross. 
he laid down the scepter and the crown of the king to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And then you even have when he was resurrected and it said he went to the place where the disciples where he had told them to meet and then he went and met them and it said some believed and it still said, do you remember? Some doubted. It's a little bit of a kick in the teeth, I would think. Hey guys, don't forget, I'm gonna rise and then I want you to meet me here. And they, they did and they met him there and then they went, mm, really? Maybe a better example of trying to think of what does it mean that God condescended to us would be something like this. Picture a mother with her newborn. And there's a little boy playing around that desperately wants mom to go and play with him. And uh, she's thinking, oh good, more, more playtime. We've had hours of that and weeks of that and months of that. I'd like to go for a hike I'd like to read a book. I'd like to take a nap. I'd like to take a shower in peace. And instead, she goes and she sits down right next to that child. Why would she do that to go down to be with this helpless child? Love. That's what it is. It's love. God condescending to us is out of love. That is his rescue plan for all of humanity. And if we miss that, that God is other and better than we are, and he had to condescend to come down and be with mere mortals like us, if we miss that, if that just rubs us the wrong way to think God had to condescend to us, we miss the entire nature of the gospel. Look at what it says in verse nine. It says, therefore, because of what Jesus had done, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just a very brief application I wanna give you here. Um, Christians, this is the whole context is part of the church. We are to practice what is called the gospel humility towards one another. That God has done that to us in Jesus Christ and we do that towards each other in a different way. But we look and go, if, G if God has done that in Jesus Christ to us, who in the world? And like God's here and I'm here. There's nobody in the world that I have that chasm between that God does with me. There's no excuse and no reason to do it. And, and I know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm listening to your thoughts and thinking, um, I would never be condescending. Of course we shouldn't be condescending. That's not even insight. But suppose you're um, maybe a couple, say you're in a marriage, and we'll say he does something, some egregious sin that hurts her. Does it feel like all of a sudden there's a guilt gap? This could be a best friend, this could be a coworker, or something like that. All of a sudden there can be this guilt gap and if we're not careful, those of us that we, when we get sinned against, we can look down at the other person and honestly want them to grovel just a little bit. We want them to understand this hurt me and it's bad. And I want you to feel that a little bit. And what the gospel calls us to do is to say, Reach down, throw your arms around them, and restore them. Easier said than done, I know. That's what we're called to do. We don't condescend to others. We tell them about the God that has condescended to us. If 
I truly understand what God has done for me, forgiveness all of a sudden becomes much easier. And lastly, um, how does this actually bring us joy? Let me just give you two quick ways that this idea that God is a God that has condescended to us brings us joy. Two quick ways. <clears throat> if, um, if, if he is just like us, or maybe a tiny bit better version of us, then what is he going to, to save us to? Well, not much. But if he is infinite, if he is divine, if he is so much more, if he is so much better than we are, if he is eternal, now he can save us to something for all eternity that is beautiful and glorious that nobody can ever take away. Amen. And the second thing is, um, I wanted to say is this, is um, <clears throat> he condescended through Jesus Christ. He did many times to the Old Testament. He went to be with his people. And today, <clears throat> the God who condescended then still condescends to be with us even today. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We pray, God, would your presence, we don't say, would you be here? We say, would your presence here with us be evident today as we worship you? Would your presence with us be evident in our homes as we're serving you and worshiping you and lifting you up? And the God who condescended in the past condescends today, and he is with you and he is with me. And so I say, especially to those whose uh, whose Christmas might have one fewer people around the table, um, who might feel a little lonelier this Christmas season especially, you are not alone. And that God is with you. That God is with us. Amen. Thanks be to God.